Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Fidelity Equity Research Analyst Nick Belmare and Equity Research Associate Connor McGrath join host Pamela Ritchie on the show today to discuss what's shaping the Canadian financial industry, the impact of the Jackson Hole Symposium, and what would an extended rate cycle mean for real estate sectors. In his recent remarks at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium, Fed Chair Jerome Powell acknowledged that inflation has come down, but that it remains too high and the Fed is prepared to raise rates if appropriate. Nick and Connor unpack the implications of Powell's remarks on Canadian markets and also take a look at the impact of the broader current economic environment on the specific sectors of Canadian real estate and financials and the role of regulations in shaping these industries. They emphasize the importance of monitoring credit conditions, housing supply, and demand dynamics, as well as the influence of interest rates on financial and real estate markets. They both also highlight the potential for investment opportunities within the financial services sector, particularly in companies that can navigate challenging environments and capitalize on market dislocations. This podcast was recorded on August 25, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Okay, we have to ask a few about Jackson Hole because we're going to talk about all those other things too, but this is kind of an exciting day. And we invite everyone to send their, their questions in for Connor and for Nick. Um, Nick, let's begin with you. The remarks, um, a little hawkish, actually. What did you think? Yes, that's the market reaction. We're seeing yields up a little bit, you know, the equity market being a little bit hesitant after those remarks. In the, the broad perspectives, the, the comments are largely consistent with what we've been hearing from Powell for a while, yeah. which is, look, we've done a lot of tightening to address this inflation problem. We've hiked rates. We've done QT. Inflation is responding so we can shift to a new regime, bet back, maybe get the, uh, the foot off the accelerator a little bit and watch what happens. But we're not ready to cut rates yet because, mm-hmm. you know, central bankers are still very focused on the risk of a reacceleration of the inflation. So they're telling us, don't expect rate rate cuts. And if anything, if things accelerate, there may be a few more hikes on the way. Yeah, they really sort of pushed further off the table, the, the rate, the cuts discussion. Connor, I'll ask you how you sort of digest all of this into a bit of a, and this is what it means broadly, for financials. What are financials dealing with any different than yesterday? Yeah, for sure. I think, as Nick mentioned, you know, we're kind of in a new regime where I think, you know, from a company and an investor point of view, we kind of have to take a step back and think about, okay, if we look back 18 months when the Fed started hiking, we're now, you know, 18 months forward and, you know, rates are 500 basis points plus higher. And, and maybe this is a new normal, perhaps, for a company. So for us as investors and, and what our team is doing across all of our sectors is really stress testing how our companies behave in this kind of environment. If interest rates are to remain higher for longer and, you know, if potentially the, the macro 
you know, weakens or, you know, shifts in, in some way from what we see now. So for us, it's really about analyzing the different dispersions of outcomes, understanding which companies are best positioned through the cycle, and obviously trying to pounce on any opportunity. Nick, um, any company, regardless of what they make or do or create, um, is going to feel this. Any large company is going to feel the cost of capital rising. It's It's been the story for, for 18 months. Why is it different for the banks? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a softball here, but uh, take us through what it means. Legit. Yes. I mean, yeah, like rates do have a large impact on all aspects of the bank's businesses, right? And we have a great time now to assess that as we're entering or we're in the middle, actually, of the, the Q3 uh, bank earnings season, which keeps bank out is very busy at the end of August. Well, it feels like the world's on vacation. Yeah. But for <laughs> us, there's a lot to digest in those bank earnings reports. So let's hear some of the themes and, and sort of with this in the backdrop, obviously. Mm -hmm. Higher for longer, it looks like. Yes, absolutely. So like everything in life in moderation can be good, but in excess can backfire, right? And so there's a little bit of the same for, for rates, right? All bankers, I think, would tell you, you know, in the middle of 2020, they would welcome some rate hikes because it does help their margins and their deposit spreads. But now we're seeing what so many rate hikes can do to the banks. And, you know, there's more, it's definitely a more complicated and challenging operating environment. And so higher cost of capital, it does slow the lending, right? We're seeing it, especially in the mortgage market, but also in commercial loans, they're slowing down. Then the first few hikes, they do help your margins, but at some point the depositors become a lot, a lot more sensitive. You know, if they have money sitting at the bank paying no interest, they want to return on that money. And so that's been compressing the bank's margins. You're seeing also other big Canadian banks have large capital markets operations. So again, with this volatile funding cost, you're seeing less deal, less transaction. And the last point I would say, that's perhaps that last one has been a little bit more of a surprise to me this year has been you know, how bloated the expense base has been for those banks, just as the top line has been softening, you've seen the banks have to deal with very elevated expenses. I think one of the big factors there has been in the past two years, a lot of people were leaving banks, maybe go work for a cool startup or something like yeah. that, right? But now in the funding crunch and uh, maybe a little bit at the margin software employment market, the stability of a job position at, at the bank, right, is getting more appealing. So for every 10 departure, like the attrition that were expected, maybe only two people have left. And so the banks find themselves in a position where they probably have a little more people than they would have expected uh, starting the year. So interesting. Interesting to hear some of the themes that we've heard so far from some of the big banks. And of course, in light of this. So so kind of zooming in on the real estate and also the insurers, which yep. you cover, Connor. But let, let's begin with real estate. Um, what is left to see. I mean, there, there's sort of this analogy of shoes dropping uh, yeah. left and right. Yeah. What's happened already? Yep. And what are we still kind of facing? Sure. So I'd say, you know, you know, Nick mentioned, you know, bankers maybe like higher rates. I'd say real estate investors do not like higher That's rates. Right. So, <laughs> um, so in terms of shoes dropping, so last year, what we saw was the first shoe to drop. So that was, you know, at this point in the rate cycle, rates go up and valuations come down. And that's mainly because the discount rates you use to value these assets come up and the cash flows that you value come down. And, and that happened last year in large part. The second shoe to drop is really what happens to underlying fundamentals of these assets. You know, the rent that you get, how, you know, how much vacancy you have in these assets. And if, if we look across the different real estate asset classes, we've really only seen that kind of stress and maybe deterioration in office. And we spoke about that last time that we were on in, in April. And, and you see the headlines around, you know, office vacancy and, and the impacts that work from home has had on, on how you know, office owners you know, manage their space, how they attract and maintain tenants. 
Um, but when we look across other sectors, we maybe haven't yet seen that same deterioration, whether it's a result of really attractive supply and demand fundamentals, you know, demographic tailwinds that are driving um, you know, really strong performance. But again, at the end of the day, it's a noisy world and, and we want to take a bottoms up kind yeah. of approach to everything and find those opportunities where, you know, there may be noise or a company or a sector is unfairly punished for, you know, maybe broader noise or broader. And you mean sectors within commercial real yeah. estate. So, so yep. office is one, as yep. you say, yep. the story is somewhat well known yep. at this point. Uh, what other sectors within? Yeah. So, so generally four main food groups within real estate. So we have office, we have residential, we have industrial, like more logistics, and then we have retail shopping. So, you know, obviously there's various different factors and dynamics for each uh, subsector, but, you know, I'll, I'll choose an example, let's say residential where, you know, uh, we're seeing in Canada, you know, we have a you know, record immigration numbers over the next several years. Yeah. You know, we obviously have, um, you know, an issue where, you know, buying a, a new home right now is maybe a bit challenging just given where mortgage rates are and, and, and home prices. So, you know, companies like that, you know, they're, they're, you know, you know, the substitute for buying a home is more renting it. So you are seeing that, you know, that increased demand for those kinds of homes and uh, whether it's people who would be first time home buyers or, you know, new entrants into the country. And um, and you're really seeing that in these companies and where rental rates are proving across right. different cities. Uh, and up, yeah, anything basically <laughs> anywhere but up. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it, you, but you see that. But again, I think that speaks to the, you know, the unique factors in each sector and why you can't necessarily just paint a broad brush across mm -hmm. all of them. So is that a pretty good area to be invested in right now? I mean, again, you know, for us, we, we always look for opportunities and we always have to balance different outcomes because obviously what may be good today, maybe won't be good tomorrow. So yeah. again, for us, it's understanding, you know, where we stand today, but also kind of what the future holds, because there's obviously various different factors that impact these, these companies, whether it's interest rates or regulation or, you know, just, you know, issues in the macro if, if the economy does weaken at all. Yeah. Um, so we have to factor in all of those considerations. I, one of the things, and I want to ask both of you about this, uh, it is sort of the macro picture that, that will affect financials no matter what. So it, we get into the discussion of to what degree is the recession risk there for you? How, you know, you don't have to give me exactly your odds on it, but let's discuss a little bit about the known, no, the known problems. And then there's always the unknown, but it does seem that the China real estate and otherwise seems to be some version of a risk to the global economy. It's hard to know whether it stays there and it's contained. But um, broadly, would you see real estate issues in China jumping into the Canadian real estate market? Or, or is, is that really quite separate? Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, you maybe wouldn't see necessarily a first order impact of any kind of direct contagion. I'd say potentially there's maybe some second order impacts, whether it's, you know, uh, certain investors who would be, you know, uh, you know do, who do a lot of activity and deals in the Chinese market are now maybe moving to more, you know, markets that are perceived as more stable, like maybe in Canada, the U.S., maybe Europe, and and maybe that's a, a tailwind for real estate valuations in those markets, perhaps, is just as you get more capital. Um, but then also at the same time, though, you could also have the flip side where you know if you do have an element of, of foreign buyers and you know foreign investors in Canadian and U.S. markets, they maybe pull their money out because of opportunities that arise in, in you know the Chinese market or. Or why not? Or, or they have to pull their capital back in for, for maybe less uh, less desirable. So it's something that you watch, but there there could be sort of second order, exactly. as you say. And exactly. and with with the fine, I mean, with the global economy, the banks are going to have mm -hmm. some sort of reaction one way or the other. Is that is that how you look at it? Yeah. Is it not a direct. I think it's a knock on effect, right? It's right. clearly a weak spot right now in the global economy. Canada generally is more of a resource kind of oriented economy, and so. The uh, that's a little more sensitive to the Chinese sentiment and may impact flows that come in or out of the country and banks being such a big part of our index, right? There's always a, 
the implication of that. So that's sort of something you watch, but again, mm -hmm. as, as more of a, a second order. Yes. Um, take us through uh, some of the other pieces of the financial story, Nick, with, with the banks. I mean, uh, it's an interesting story. We're, we're Go back to the recession a little bit. Like, is there some version of an event that would, like, they're kind of expensive right now, broadly speaking. Like, is, would an event make that a nicer entry point? I'm basically asking, yeah. you, are they too expensive? No, I I think they're not particularly expensive, right? So the, val the valuations have come down. They're probably at a point where they're somewhere below the historical averages. Yeah. But what we're really watching, and when we think about recession, the big thing for financials and banks especially is credit, the credit story, right? Because that tends to be, when credit losses uh, go up, that tends to be a scary time for financial investing, right? And there's right now what we've seen is we've come from two years of very benign credit environments, right? Uh, businesses, households were flush with cash from government handouts, you know, high savings rates, strong employment. Uh, and that hasn't shifted dramatically, but at the margin it is as the impact of higher rates makes it. And you're seeing, for instance, the mortgage books roll over and so on. And right. so there's a saying in bank that, you know, the, right now what people say is that they're seeing normalization, but the saying is that Losses are normal twice in the cycle, right? On the way down and on the way up. Right. And most of the time, they tend to overshoot. So right now, you know, being normal on the way up, when we look outside the window, we see dark clouds just from, again, doing uh, some work bottom up in terms of modeling yep. this impact of higher rates on the borrowers and debt service ratios. And probably some more macro red flags would be up, right? In terms of an inverted yield curve, the bank's willingness to land, leading indicators weakening. So all I can say is there's dark, dark clouds. It's not really raining yet. We don't know if it's going to be a short, you know, uh, a little bit of rain or a big storm. But um, that's, that is really what you want to watch for is the credit story is probably the next kind of story to play out in, over the next 12, 18 months in financials. Okay, okay, great, great. Just sort of get a window onto that. Speaking of windows and actually blowing, um, we've had a little bit of unsettled weather here, but that is actually the insurance story, isn't it? Unsettled weather yep. and horrific um, fires across our country, across really across many pockets of the world. The insurers... What do they do with all of this? Are we are we seeing fundamental shifts in the way they provide provide insurance to their clients? Is is it is that too? Are we downplaying it too much? Like what's happening? No, it's interesting, and I, I, I always kind of joke with myself that I turn into a part time meteorologist during the summer yeah. months uh, in this <laughs> job. So no, I mean we've seen you know it's funny if you, if you take a step back and you look back over the last fifteen to twenty years, you know you've seen this you know up and to the right basically trend of of large catastrophic weather events happen. And insurance, we call these cat events for short. Um, and, you know, we've seen them happen not only more frequently, but when they do happen, they are more severe. Right. Um, so, you know, we see, we have, you know, historically bad wildfires in Canada. You know, California had its first hurricane in 39 years earlier this week. So um, these events do happen. And unfortunately, you know, if you are a, an insurer who, you know, insures someone's home or someone's business or whatnot, and those get damaged, you have to pay up for those, those losses. And those losses, unfortunately, are going up because, as I mentioned, storms are happening more often and more severe, but also just the value of those properties is also going up as well. So, right. so the replacement costs are there. So, you know, when an insurance company is, is you know, when, when they come across that fork in the road or what do you do when you face these kinds of losses, you really have two options. The one more rational and, and more common option is you raise prices. 
And that basically means- Like the premiums. Yeah, you have to rebuild profitability, you have to rebuild capital, but it obviously means if you're a homeowner, you're paying more for your your monthly premium or your annual premium, whatever you pay. The second option is a lot more drastic and a lot more radical, and ideally is the last case scenario. And that's where you essentially exit an entire line of business entirely. Like a region? Yeah, you you stop writing business in that region entirely. And we haven't necessarily seen that in Canada historically, more in the US where some insurance companies will no longer write property insurance in Florida because of the hurricane. Others won't write wild, you know, insurance in California because of the wildfire risk. And, and that's a really extreme scenario. And obviously it has a negative knock-on impact for the underlying consumer because you're you know, not only faced without any coverage, but you now have to go find coverage and it's going to cost you a lot more. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And it's something that I have to, you know, that we think about a lot internally is, you know, how are our companies positioned and what exposures are they you know, are, are they you know faced with? And does and it bring down the real estate value? <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, you would think at first glance it might be, and and whether is one kind of you know determinant in the value of, of real estate and location and whatnot. But at the same time, though, you know, there's also that scarcity value as well. If you know everyone's moving out uh, or if people are moving into certain areas, then it, it may have an impact. But um, I, I wouldn't say it's the sole driver of real estate right. values going up or down. But um, but for us, though, again, as investors, it's you know it can be noisy when these things happen, and, and there can be dislocations that do occur. And it's our job to kind of figure out how we can capitalize on those and find those opportunities based on the work that we've done. So, I mean, again, all companies are dealing with a number of these dis- um, particular problems, but sort of funneling it back to financials and particularly banks. I mean, what do the banks say about some of this? They also have substantial either mm-hmm. insurance arms or, I mean, this is an area where the financials across the board must be feeling the impact. Yeah, absolutely. They have to think about, you know, uh, in terms of, for instance, mortgage lending, right? right. Like where you're uh, sort of, you're on the hook, obviously they would require some insurance to back those loans, but this is all part of the thought process. And I think there's a concerted effort also with the regulation. How do we incorporate kind of climate into the bank's reporting in terms of their risk management? It is really becoming sort of part of the day-to-day risk management of how the large financial institutions operate, and it's becoming increasingly built into the regulatory frameworks as well. So, so on regulations, this is more going back to what we saw south of the border, SVB. Yeah. Um, there, there was a, a regulatory reaction. Um, we all know we have a very different financial setup, so it's yes. it's not meant to. But um, I think you told me, and maybe others, that uh, there's usually contagion from regulation, right? There's some version of, oh, we're going to do that there, and then they're probably coming to the Canadian banks. Give us the landscape mm-hmm. for regulation. Maybe I'll ask that to both of you in a minute. Yeah, perfect. I mean... Certainly, this was um, the, the the regional bank crisis was a big deal in financials. Was, I mean, yeah. lo- losing some fairly sizable uh, financial institutions overnight. It will get the regulators to look at you know what happened and some of the lessons there were especially around uh, coming back to the idea right of like not having had to deal with these big rate hikes for a long time. Some maybe there were some blind spots in terms of how you regulate and manage some aspects of the banks. And, especially around asset management liabilities, and also just the quality of deposits, right? In the new world of like technology and having very concentrated uninsured deposits, you know, the, it's usually at the intersection of those two areas where okay. we've seen the casualties. And so- Like specific types of, of deposits. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like very concentrated that can kind of flee. That's where we've seen these deposit runs, right? So thankfully, I think um, things have settled and calmed down, but certainly the regulatory fallout is still 
common uh, for the Canadian banks, the good news is they, they rank pretty well on those aspects, right? They always manage a pretty uh, tightly managed book in terms of their asset liability management. And be having a few very large banks, they by nature are very diversified deposit base. So I don't expect a, um, a game-changing kind of environment, but it's certainly something us who's looking at liquidity ratio and as bank investors, we're probably paying uh, more time spending and looking at, um, you know, liquidity coverage ratios and so on. But probably the bigger regulatory story for Canadian banks has been uh, the increase in the domestic stability buffer. And that's really the regulators saying to the banks, you know, build your rainy day fund because we're seeing some risks arising you know, it may be tied to what we've seen in the U.S., but it may be tied also to household debt and, you know, uh, and, and mortgages. And so they're saying build that that capital buffer. And so in rainy days, you know, you have something to draw on and the system will be stable. That slow things down. It does. You know what it means for investors. Um, it does protect the system, but that money that's going to that to put aside for the capital, it can't be used for, you know, as much buybacks or dividend increases. Right. So you're slowing you're slowing the capital returns. And then each dollar of lending that you do under higher capital requirements, as it attracts more capital, is also right. more costly. And so the propensity to, to lend, it probably goes down in the margin. But what about across real estate, but also the insurance side of things, yeah. similar similar set of regulations? Just yeah, like- yeah, and, and OSFI obviously regulates the yeah. insurance companies as well. And, and those companies, again, have a very healthy capital buffer. And then like the banks, they, they do a good job of managing their assets and liabilities and the durations there, but also, you know, similar to Nick, I mean, they have a very, they're very large businesses and they have a very diverse set of exposure. You know, the companies have exposure in Canada and the US and Europe and, and Asia and whatnot. So it's, it's not necessarily like you're concentrated within a certain niche. and you know, if there's risk to that niche, then that could cause some issues. It's it's very broad and, and diversified, and and these companies, I think, do a very good job of kind of managing prudently. Um, and on the real estate side, it, it's interesting because you know it's not as regulated in the same way as as you would see in banks or with insurance companies. But the, the one kind of um, area that is a little bit more regulated or has a regulatory tone to it is more housing. Yeah. Um, you know, as we see, you know, we've had a recent cabinet reshuffle at the federal level. We have a new federal housing minister and. Um, you know, and there's, you know, been a lot of headlines around housing affordability and, you know, both on the rental and on the, on the buying side. And it, it seems like, you know, that there's a growing need and kind of a growing call for coordination across the different levels of government around how can we kind of solve this issue? How can we bring the private sector into that? Because they have the capital and the expertise to build this. And, you know, we're at a point right now where we're at a pretty severe imbalance between housing supply and housing demand. You know, yeah. we have very strong demand, but we have a very limited supply. And I think, you know, right now conversations are being had as to what levers can we pull across, you know, different parts of the government and even the private sector to kind of rebalance that um, that dynamic and get back a little bit closer to, to equilibrium. So do we just sort of watch for something on that? Because it, exactly. it feels like something's yeah. building, but yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and it, it's something that you know we're watching for all the time, and and you know we can track. You know, Stats Canada has you know is really good you know, data on, on housing starts and we can understand capital flowing in and whatnot. So, you know, it's about understanding for us as investors, you know, we have this, you know, current starting point where, you know, we have really strong immigration, you know, rental housing is, is in high demand, but, you know, we, we don't necessarily have the same supply response to match that. And it's really just understanding that pace of change that does shift back and how quickly that may happen. So um, are there factors that might lead to improved deposit rates? Uh, I mean, the deposit rates have been improving a lot, right? Sometimes you yeah. have to shop them, but generally, you know, I mean, it's a... Com- immigration, the answer to that in a way, or...? 
uh, I mean, if we're talking about like the, the rates that banks are paying on their deposits, right? Certainly there's a lot of uh, better offers out there. And right. what we're seeing is less, it's more around uh, how the depositors like will reallocate some of their uh, funds from, let's say, you know, a checking account that pays nothing. If there's excess balances sitting there, they'll be chasing maybe a GIC or a money market fund or something like that, right? So the rates are there and it's more around how the depositors react. Yeah. And I mean, so what is being done to, to hold on to those? Because they, as you say, money does have options in other mm -hmm. places. Like what, what is sort of, well, uh, they, I'm sure they're, they're onto it. <laughs> There's a lot of strategies. It's a, you know, there are people working at banks specialized only in deposits, right? And so there's different types of deposits too. You know, sometimes if you, sure. if banks, they try to build maybe more strategies around how can we offer value to clients, right? Like if it's a commercial client and you're offering a treasury management solution or FX right. services, right? right? right. Or um, a better online experience, perhaps, you know, your, the, the, your client will, won't be as sensitive to a 20 basis point difference, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's, um, there's, uh, a shift between the really commodity deposits and those where relationships and value-added services can be built on. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how some of the financial institutions try to do. Honor, um, just getting back to real estate, and, and it could be the residential story. Um, with with office, there are sort of two pieces of the story. There's the, the change around how people work, obviously. Yep. Um, there's also a rate story involved in that. Do you... Do you find that there should be some level of, we started the conversations about, you know, 18 months into this rate raising, uh, rising cycle, rate raising cycle, there we go. Um, shouldn't that just sort of naturally correct the expensive housing prices? That I know there's a dynamic there, but yeah, shouldn't that work? You would think in theory, yes. Um, I think the important thing to understand is that starting points matter. Um, so, you know, if we, if we, you know, take the, I guess the starting point that we're at now is that, you know, you're, you're at a very, you know, imbalanced supply and demand dynamics. So, you know, if you have very constrained supply and actually like a, a decent demand buffer, even if you've had, you know, a, a pretty large increase in rates over the last 18 months, it maybe hasn't had the same impact that you would have expected in theory. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that, you know, kind of play out in practice. And obviously, you know, we're, we've just kind of hit the, the 18 month anniversary of the first rate hike. So, Obviously, yet to be determined how the next six to 12 months play out and if that story looks a little bit differently. But um, it's really interesting, though. But I think at the same time, you know, unfortunately, you know, reality doesn't always follow theory. And right. we obviously need to kind of factor in kind of starting points and, and certain conditions that are uh, that are kind of beset on the environment. Yeah. Any sort of final points for investors to kind of keep in mind of what comes next? You've mentioned a few of them, but mm -hmm. is there anything just to kind of leave people with? Yeah, for us, what we would. We're excited to come today to work every day. It's all around finding, you know, stock investments, opportunities. And we, even in this, you know, more challenging environment, we found a lot, right? Even within the banks, right? So uh, if the environment's going to give them lemons, some banks maybe can make lemonade out of yeah. that, right? So we're, we're looking for uh, self-help stories or uh, banks that may be in a position to capitalize on a tougher environment. And there has been a big disparity in returns amongst the different banks. So it has been an alpha rich sector. Um, and, but we're probably, you know, been a little less involved there over the past 12, 18 months than at some other points in the cycle and capitalize more on either business models that can compound their value of the shareholder value through different market environment. I'm thinking about like exchanges, you know, 
card networks, these types of businesses, or, and we also stand uh, always ready to take advantage of dislocations, right? So part of our process is for each stock, we have sort of bull, base, and bear case. And when times are good, we try to really think about what can go wrong and what does that ultimately mean for the revenue, the margin, and the stock price more importantly, um, and be ready to act, right? So even in the regional bank crisis in the spring, right? Yeah. A lot of financials sold out. The best opportunities were perhaps not in banks themselves, but other parts of financial services, uh, for instance, like private equity. Some of those stocks hit our right. target prices. And then, yes, things look scary, but if you come prepared, uh, you can take advantage of, of a volatile market. So that's really right. our, our mindset, kind of these three buckets where I'm excited to, you know, to deploy capital over the next, uh, the next block. Okay, thank you. What, what about you, Connor? Would you say just sort of a couple of kernels to leave investors with? Yeah, no, I, I'd echo a lot of what Nick said. Where you know we're we're always really excited. Everyone here likes picking stocks. Thing to do, but again, at the end, fun, right? it is yeah. really fun. And, and people always you know joke that we're nerds or whatnot, but I think we're happy being stock nerds. So, yeah. um, but no, at the end of the day, you know we we do our homework and we try and come prepared and look for those opportunities and. It's a really noisy world out there. I think every, I don't think there's any one sector that isn't facing some kind of noise or, or headwind or anything like that. And to us, that kind of screams opportunity. So for us, we're really trying to sift through all the noise, really kind of hone in and, and know our companies really well. And uh, and really, again, yeah, just figure out which companies are best positioned to you know, to deliver value for us as shareholders through the cycle. And you know, ideally, you know, understand you know where maybe certain companies may become more attractive as the cycle develops. And, uh, and whatnot, and, and not totally write off, you know, certain sectors and, and what you know, like real estate kind of gets a bad rap right now just yeah. because of, of all the noise. But at the end of the day, you know, there's there's a lot of dispersion within sectors. It's very alpha rich, so we can definitely find opportunities. Brilliant. Well, it's it's been absolutely enlightening speaking to both of you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Connor. All the best. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.